don't call me up, please, on really? my telephone. My telephone. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. Well, I wouldn't call you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Media Week podcast, the podcast made for media people by media people. Don't worry, we're not your CEOs just yet. We're your common media folk in the weeds of the day-to-day. Each episode, we'll share opinions on hot topics in the media world, along with some bants to keep you going on a Friday afternoon. So who's in the room? It's me, your host, Harriet from Publicis, Jack from Quaft. Quaft? Quaft? (laughs) (laughs) That was brilliant. Okay, so Jack from Quaft. (laughs) And Boogie from Wavemaker. Yo, yo. In today's episode, we let AI do our job. We evaluate AI selection of foundational and influential media literature that will give you the advantage at work. But first... In the world of augmented reality and AI, Meta's chief technology officer has been quoted calling their latest AI glasses prototype as the most advanced thing we have produced as a species. As a species? Wowzers, trousers. The most advanced thing we've produced as a species. The company is currently working on making the design more cost-effective and integrating AI. Isn't that what Google did, like, seven years ago with Google Glass? (laughs) I mean, I would say probably getting to the moon in a spaceship is probably the most advanced <laughs> thing we've done as a species. But I mean, they've got a whole, they've transplanted people's hands onto other people's bodies. Like they literally, science is crazy. And they think this is the most advanced thing we've done as a species. I just, I don't know. I think when stuff like this happens, you're solving solutions to problems that don't exist yet. Like we don't need that. I think you've got to take a look at who's saying it. The chief technology officer for Meta. Of course, so he's, he's huffing his own farts. Like he he truly believes that he probably he probably truly believes what he's saying, but um yeah I think everyone else will be uh, you know none too pleased so. In the metaverse, Futureverse, a metaverse AI company, has announced a partnership with the creators of a sci-fi film, Ready Player One, to build the Readyverse. The Readyverse will supposedly champion the principles of the open metaverse, provable digital ownership, community-owned infrastructure, decentralisation, among others. Like, that just sounds like they got AI to write a new release for some new bullshit. <laughs> like, it, it's like the crypto jargon nonsense slapped on top of the metaverse jargon nonsense. I don't want to hear metaverse anymore. <laughs> I don't well, want to hear it. It's clinging onto anything going to stay yeah. relevant. Leave us alone. Well, I hate to say it, but other brands are looking to the futureverse to broaden the, um, the ways uh, consumers the interact future-verse. with their products. Or is this the Readyverse? No, Futureverse is the Metaverse AI company. The company. The Readyverse is what they've created with Ready Player One, which is the action film. Second verse, same as the first. I I think there's a thing here that I think we often in this industry can get caught up in, in that let's be first, let's do this, let's, we have to be the people who try new things. And to be honest, that is a, a positive. We do get to do that. But sometimes, in my personal opinion... Just chill out a little bit. I, I hate to say it, guys, but I feel like as media professionals, we're being terribly negative and pessimistic no. about the blend of the metaverse and AI. This is big stuff that will be topic of conversation They've in the coming months. They've been saying it for so long, though. Well, as I'm saying, other brands are looking to Futureverse, this AI company, to broaden the way 
consumers interact with products. So one of those brands is Reebok, who's partnered with them recently um, to debut Reebok Impact, a virtual experience with AI and digital wearables. So... So I reckon a lot of the brands that invest in this type of thing are really buying into the whole like kind of Kantar brand index idea that brands that are perceived as innovative are like, I think it's three times more valuable than those who aren't. And it's a big play to be perceived as innovative. I don't know if they're actually sort of believing that people are going to kind of flock to the readyverse in their droves to wear the digital Reebok trainers. Is that kind of what it is, or am I just being? Well, granddad? we'll see. Reebok Impact. We'll have to have to have a oh, Google ahead of the next episode. So my, my researchers are working wait. on it right now, and there is a. It's an AI shoe. An AI shoe. An AI. Yeah. Reebok Impact. The AI shoe slash Futureverse. In social, fitness brand Peloton is partnering with TikTok this year to offer short-form video fitness classes. Against the backdrop of falling profits, Peloton is looking to boost subscribers and attract a new consumer, with shares surging following the deal announcement in January. What do you do if you don't have a Peloton bike and you're on the TikTok? Do you have to sort of pretend to sit in a chair, (laughs) pedal... It's probably AI. It's an AI-generated Peloton. Obviously, caveat here that 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 isn't true. Yes. An AR Peloton. Yes. Oh, right, right. I, I, I would assume. Oh, yeah, yeah, because I suppose that could be quite good. Yeah. Oh, no, that sounds like oh, a good idea. Like AR Peloton. Okay, I kind of like it. I oh. think there's a there's a trend of this kind of thing going on anyway, because Netflix did a whole Nike fitness class thing as well. Obviously less AR, but it's that mm. kind of like streaming or content platform partnering with a fitness platform to bring it to new people. I always bang it on, especially when it comes to sport, is that the digitization of like the fan and the consumer experience when it comes to sports and fitness and anything like that. It just provides new entry points for new fans and audiences. Category so. entry points. Yes. What are we talking Oops. about? That's what are we talking that. about, baby? But before we get cancelled for fake news, I will reiterate that we don't actually know if these short form fitness video classes will include an AR generated bike. But we'll see. Well, Hopefully they, they, they do. do you know what? They can have that idea for free. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. From, from the Media Week podcast gang. <laughs> In social and retail commerce, TikTok is also seeking to increase the size of its business in the US to as much as 17.5 billion, posing a bigger threat to Amazon. Amazon stocks reportedly fell in early January. I mean, because they've got the kind of commerce element, the TikTok touch shop that they have. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to be trying to eat some of Amazon's lunch, but the Amazon fall in share value is only going to be marginal, isn't it? It's not being like, not like a cliff face or whatever, so... I don't think so. I think this kind of thing is inevitable. A company like TikTok, as you kind of said, they have all of their commerce stuff. Social mm. commerce is on the rise, it has yeah. been on the rise, all of that kind of stuff. So this was always going to happen. So I think they're just, you know, finally kind of wising up. Maybe they think didn't think TikTok was going to be able to do something like that, being a Chinese-owned brand. Yeah. But here we go. I guess I guess that in the States as well, there was a big call to sort of block them, wasn't there? Because I know in India, they don't, they don't let them... Use it. They have margin Josh, which is sort of copies. Mm. So, but anyway. 
Well, speaking of Amazon and across the CTV landscape, in a former episode, we announced plans for Amazon to introduce adverts to its prime streaming service. And industry sources have reported that this will happen from the 5th of February, with consumers seeing limited ads in the UK and Germany. With the cost of living prominent, other streaming services such as Disney Plus and Netflix introduced cheaper ad-supported memberships last year, as we discussed in our former episode um, when we were talking about the evolution of SVOD platforms. I think it's really, really smart. Obviously, it's not a cost-saving measure. They're not offering people a lower tier. It's kind of, you'll just have to have it and opt out by paying more. But from a from a media standpoint, it's so smart because the incremental reach that you'll be able to get by adding Amazon Prime Video to your CTV plan will be pretty significant. I mean, I, for an undisclosed client, we sort of did a an initial run and figured out that it's probably going to give us about 11% extra reach versus our undisclosed audience so i think it's going to go really really well for them that was actually one of my questions if you think this way of doing it the way that amazon have activated it was will be superior to the way some of the other platforms have done it where they've brought lower tiers in or they've brought in that's your standard tier rather than being like now you have to opt into or you have to buy the lower one but it sounds like you think this will be the better one yeah i mean it depends because i think the reason amazon's so big in the uk is because everyone's kind of got it for the delivery thing and the whole kind of prime ecosystem it's how they frame that extra tier Mm. because if they say oh it's only this much you know i think it's like 2.99 a month more you know if they say you're already paying this much if you just pay that little bit extra it's actually not that much or whatever you know it's a terrible way of phrasing it but like how they use behavioral economics to frame that entire change will be pivotal in how successful it is but at the same time they're going to get loads of money from people putting ads through them so yeah it's interesting yeah huge from an e-commerce perspective as well now do you have a new year's resolution to read more books Well, you are in the right place because reading is an underutilised resource in the media industry. For people new to the industry, it may be quite difficult to know where to start. In 2024, it's likely that any industry newbie will probably default to AI to identify what's actually valuable to read. So what did we do? Well, the Media Week podcast asked AI to summarise foundational and influential media literature to evaluate whether you should listen to the bot or not. So, bot or not. We have... I think we should probably frame this with the fact that you two both did degrees in like advertising, right? Advertising with marketing communications. Yeah, exactly. AMC. So, you know, you, you, you know all of the books, obviously. Of course. Whereas I did a history degree, which has got nothing to do with advertising. So I've had to sort of learn about everything else kind of on the job. So, yeah, I'm intrigued to see what you guys make of some of these choices. So, number one, bot or not? Media and Society, Critical Perspectives by Graham Burton. This is a comprehensive collection of essays that covers various aspects of media studies, including media effects, cultural studies and media institutions. So, bot or not? (laughs) It seems like a pretty broad book. It doesn't, like, if you were trying to figure out how to get better at at the job, it's going to be a lot of context, but not a huge amount of, like, on-the-job knowledge. But that is what... And I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think that's what we're, some of us are missing. Mm. We have the on-the-job training. We know how to do the do. We know how to do our jobs. But sometimes it's that contextual framing, the critical thinking of the effect of what it is that we're doing. That's what's sometimes missing. So this is one that I haven't read, but obviously looking into it, it's one that is actually on my list. Although 
released, I think, 2004. Ooh. I, um, I think I was on, in year seven. I was somewhere in primary school somewhere. I think that one was on our reading list. <laughs> yeah, it was on the reading list. It's not one of the ones I've read. Okay. But I think having grown up now and working in the industry, I think it's one that I would like to revisit this year. So for me, I'm following the bot on that one. I've got an alternative Ooh. that's not on the list. I reckon if you've not read Eat Your Greens by Weimar Schneiders and an assortment of other essayists, it's a really, really good way to get yourself like a solid grounding in sort of reasonably current marketing thinking. It's not like a sort of a, a singular tome. It's lots of different contributors doing sort of short. It's almost like a collection of short books. So it's a bit um, like this one then. Yeah, yeah. But it gives you such a good like foundational knowledge of marketing that you I don't think you would get if you were just say you're like a social media buyer and you have aspirations to go and, you know, go client side or something like that. This would give you that kind of ability to to branch out. Okay, so we're agreed. Listen to the bot and also Jack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next one. Number two. The Long Tail, Why the Future of Business is Selling Less of More by Chris Anderson. This book explores the concept of the long tail in digital media, discussing how the internet has changed the dynamics of content consumption. This is my Ooh. guy. Yeah, I mean, you you were freaking out on WhatsApp about this earlier, weren't now, you? No, this, this is my guy, because this guy is cited in my dissertation, in my second year, media economics, everything, because I've always really liked this concept of like long tail kind of media consumption. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, I know, Harry, you kind of gave a brief overview of it there. But in the initial one that came out, it cited people like Apple and Amazon and I think someone else of that of that calibre, where it's no longer one size fits all. And I think that's the world that we're in with where like, you know, rapid media proliferation, like long tail advertising is the way to go. I think it's the precursor to personalization. All of that kind right. of stuff means it's just not one size fits all. So for me, that is definitely, I almost don't think it's worth, I don't know if it's worth reading now because we're living it. Well, We've I was, was going to so say hard. it was published in 2006. Yeah. So like, is it still relevant or could you just go on Bard? and ask it to summarise it for you? I think you could probably, I think the concepts in it are relevant and the concepts in it are necessary for any good marketing practitioner. Whether you need to read the entire book now, I don't think you have to, but I think long-tail advertising is absolutely, that's how Netflix beat some of the big kind of like film producers and stuff. They just said, we're going to make loads and someone's going to find whatever they want on there. So we're listening to the boss on that one. Or you could read uh, Bookie's dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) Or you can read my dissertation. But no, I think you're half listening to the bot. I think Jack's right. We can listen to the bot, but get a summary of it. Don't need to read the whole book. Nice. Number three. Convergence Culture, Where the Old and New Media Collide by Henry Jenkins. Uh, Jenkins explores the changing landscape of media consumption and the convergence of old and new media forms. I've not read this one right, but I had a little kind of look into it and I'm wondering if... You know, the view from 2006 is probably a little dated now. If you're still kind of thinking about your media in terms of like, oh, how do they how do they fit together? Like the old and the new, like that, that's happened. It's been and gone. So like, I think there are probably some better ones out there to look at, yeah. to be honest with you. To your point, I think it was ahead of its time. Yeah. Because that is, again, a little bit like the previous one. It's it's the world we're living now. Yeah. And so I get why it's, it was on our reading list in yeah. 2011. I get that. So the the AI, so if we look at the books that it's given us so far, this kind of list, it's given us some like texts that you guys read at university. So really kind of hard hitters, but kind of 
quite outdated. broad. Well, maybe a little yeah. bit outdated. Yeah. I'm just hearing that no one's writing books anymore. Well, oh no, there's, there's, there's been there's been plenty, but it's I don't want to say that old is bad though, because I think you like a lot of the old. When you go right back, there's some stuff that's that's really really solid, and a lot of like the kind of human truth stuff that doesn't really change. But it's just when you're looking at like the you know the the changing world of oh my god, there's iPhones now. It's like yeah, yeah well that's. My point on this one is that I think it would be a useful one to help people understand an older demographic of consumer and what they experienced in their changing Ooh, media consumption behaviours. That is interesting. Meta. Not not the company, but like that's, yeah, an yeah, interesting take. That, again, because we've been harping on about understanding our audiences and our consumers better and everything like that. And you don't realise how much you kind of project your own thoughts and feelings and experiences onto the audiences as a whole. So I think that's actually a really good point to be able to understand the generations that came mm. before us because they lived that, but we already knew what was going on. And hey, guys, it was 2006. It wasn't 1994. <laughs> Might as well have been. In technology years, it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so listen to the bot or not? Uh, not. Not. Just me then. <laughs> it's a nice idea. Though. You can read no. it and let us know. Number four. The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains by Nicholas Carr. This book delves into the impact of the internet on our cognitive abilities and how it has affected the way we consume media. I mean, just change internet for AI and then we got a new book (laughs) in the title because that's literally what's going on right now. Maybe. I mean, it's one of the more recent ones. I think it's 2010 that that came out. I mean, it's still still sort of coming up 14 years ago now that that's come out. I think our brains have been changed now, haven't they? Mm. The attention span's shorter. The TikTokization of everything is happening. So, I mean, again, I'm like, from a psychological perspective, potentially quite interesting. But I think you could probably, there are probably books that I would recommend people to read ahead of that if they were if they were going to do it. Do you have one? I've, oh, I've got a whole list of them, which Great. I can bore you with. <laughs> yeah, well, no, we no, need we'll that. Those. We need, okay. we need some we'll alternative options. Or do you want to yeah. save it till the end? I reckon we'll get those at the end. Should we do them at the end? Yeah. yeah. Go All through right. these. Well, yeah, yeah I'm, not, I'm not sure about the shallows. I've got an alternative for biology, though. Okay, right. Well, we're notting. We're not listening to the bot for the shallows. No. Okay. Number five. How brands grow, what marketers don't know. In this book, Byron Sharp challenges some traditional marketing beliefs and provides evidence-based insights into how brands can achieve growth. This is one that's worth reading. Absolutely. Listen to the, in fact, it was the only one on that list where I was like, yes, read that. And it's also, it's blessedly quite short. There is also a follow-up where he kind of pushes the theory on. However, it's gone from being this kind of new theory of like, oh my God, to being something that's a, a little bit, it's almost become dated in itself. It's a useful theory to know about, but there are lots of riposts to it because Sharp's theory is just, you just go after reach and that's it. But it negates the certain aspects of, of advertising, which are also very important. But it's worth reading so that you have a grasp of it. No, so. I agree. I think this was actually one when we started uh, at Wavemaker on the grad scheme. So there was like five of us on the grad scheme. They made all of us read this book and they bought it all for us when we rotated through the strategy department. And to your point, it's things that I think a lot of marketers, either they never knew or they have forgotten. There's a lot of basics in there that I yeah. think are very, very useful for anyone trying to find their feet in the industry and actually understand what it is that they're doing. So, yeah, yeah definitely. I would, I would also say just for industry newbies that following Byron Sharp on LinkedIn is probably also a, a good shout. Follow Byron Sharp, follow Sarah Carter, follow 
Rory Sutherland follow, you know, like Les Burnett, Peter Field, all of these kind of people who have released their books. Those people are like, they're, they're always putting out sort of new work and it's not always in the form of a book. So For um, everyone struggling to write that down as quickly as possible, we will put these practitioners and any book recommendations in the show notes. Yes. Okay, so bot or not? Listen uh, bot. to the bot. Yeah, yeah listen to the bot. bot. Listen to the bot for once. And finally, number six. Biology, Truth and Lies About Why We Buy by Martin Lindstrom. Lindstrom explores the science of consumer behaviour and the factors that influence purchasing decisions and are crucial for media buying and advertising strategies. Nice. That is like, actually, there's a kind of a, a book that's come out since then, which builds on it called Decoded by Phil Barden. Mm. Um, oh, and yes, that's like... It's a very similar kind of thing, but slightly kind of more updated. I think biology sounds like a good one, but also decoded if you can read that. Again, it's not too long, so you can just sort of have a flick through and and learn lots, I would say. So in summary, we have said yes to the bot one, two, three, four times. Four times. Four times out of six. That's pretty good. It's more than I would have said, probably. But Yeah, I think think we might caveat that on some of them are a bit old and dated and we've said yes to the bot on the concept and maybe the the next part of that one yeah i mean i think there's there's a couple of other things that i would sort of recommend if it, and these are a little bit planning skewed but if you understand how to plan you can pull out different elements for your kind of specific discipline whether you're media on side client side buying side or, or whether you're a planner yourself there's a book called how not to plan by lesbonette and sarah carter and that's like, it's almost like a step-by-step guide for how to avoid all of the different pitfalls that people fall into. If you don't understand the entire process that your clients are going to go through, like it literally breaks it down. It's so light and easy to dip in and out of. And I have a copy that literally sits on my desk. Like if you're starting out, read that and it will put you streets ahead of your your peers. Then also The Choice Factory by Richard Shotton. That's a really, really good guide to sort of behavioural biases. It's a great introduction, really easy to read to like behavioural economics. Like it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I would recommend sort of having a look at that and seeing what kind of different things you can apply to your own thing. And then I'm going to go back on everything that we said about really old sources because some sources are still really, really good. Timeless. So if you go all the way back to 1974, the JWT Planning Guide by Stephen King not Stephen King, the horror writer, Stephen King, the the kind of chief planner from JWT back in the day. He's like one of the granddaddies of advertising. There's going to be a link to this in the show notes as well, because it's it's a kind of publicly available document. But if you have a leaf through this, it makes you realise that all of the fundamentals of what we do have remained exactly the same. Sure, there are more channels and stuff like that, but actually the way to think about the challenges that you face for your different clients it kind of remains fundamentally the same because humans are still the same. We've got better tech, but we we haven't changed since the sort of the middle of the 20th century or for the past hundred thousand years, really. So, you know, it's, if, if you can, if you have a read through that, it will take you back to the kind of fundamentals. And also it's a pretty good one to have up your sleeve to sort of raise some eyebrows when you reference it. Well, there we go. Some really valuable resources. We're not going to completely slate the AI. No, we're not. No, I did all right. Ring, ring. Ring, ring. Hello, Media Anon. What have we got today? Okay, so Media Anon number one. 
looking for some advice. I work for an insight and measurement company on an EMEA new biz team. And due to my manager leaving and not being replaced, I'm one of three people being put into a cluster lead position. There's been hella change at the company this year with loads of redundancies globally, so everyone's a bit on edge. I'm now going to be managing five people across five different markets, none of which that I know very well, and many of whom are older or have been in the company longer than me. Any advice on how to build a team culture, get off on the right foot and get them to trust me as their manager would be massively appreciated. It also doesn't help when we can't meet in person. That is a massive challenge. Yeah, um, I've never heard the phrase cluster lead before. Me neither. It's not one of my favourite words either. I would say that, yeah, the remote part makes it a little bit difficult because you kind of want to start with a bit of team building. Yeah. But I think fundamentally it would be a good idea to really put in the effort of getting to know the various points of contact and and stakeholders across each cluster. It is super tricky, but I think one of the things that that you can do that will immediately sort of, you know, kind of help to build those bonds a little bit more is actually call them with your phone so that you're not staring at each other like on a screen because it's just it's just awkward, especially when you're trying to kind of get to know someone a bit more. The phone, it's kind of like a little bit more personal for me. Don't just go straight into like the, this is what I need you to do. Just do the kind of, you know, ask them about themselves and like call them for a reason that isn't asking them to do something. Just call them up and say, I, I wanted to know your advice on this or something like that. That will help to build a little bit more of a kind of rapport between you both. I think the phone thing's actually very clever there because I think a big part of that is that they are older than us. Or I'm assuming mm. this person is maybe our level or even younger than us. Yeah. So that means the people that they're having to engage with are older than us. So phone calls are nothing weird to them. Don't call me up, please, on really? my telephone. If someone, call, if someone calls me, I'm like, oh, that's nice. My telephone. Don't yeah. do that. Don't do that. Well, I wouldn't call you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I, but you know what I mean? But yeah. I think yeah, I think the calling them up sounds like a really, really good piece of advice, actually, Jack. Mm. I'll let you off that. I think also over-communicate when it comes to what your plans are, specifically with kind of, you know, the more senior stakeholders in in those those clusters. As Jack said, you, you kind of also want, want the advice from people that have perhaps been there a little bit longer. You don't need to take it, but... I would say also like network operations and kind of monthly network calls are really important as well to not only keep a, a consistent presence as a cluster lead, but to ensure that there's kind of integration across the regional outputs. I guess that is Thank very you. dependent on how the company is structured, but I imagine there would need to be some consistency across that. Second and final one. Okay. I've been saving to buy a house with my wife for a very long time now. We both work in London. However, her job is fully remote and we would like to move out of London to be able to afford a bigger and cheaper place, get away from the noise and pollution and live a peaceful country life. Mm. Sounds Sounds lovely. This had always been our plan as my job was pretty relaxed with working from home. However, a couple of months ago, they put some pretty strict office working rules in, which would require me to have an extremely long and expensive commute if we were to buy in our desired area. Any advice as to how I might be able to make this work? There's been all sorts of rules coming back in about like days you have to be in and the fully remote working dream is kind of coming to an end. I think if you want to fully work remotely you're probably going to have to look at a different role, aren't you, realistically? And unless you can get come to some sort of special agreement about coming in 
you know, a couple of days a week or, or whatever. Because you are going to have to go yeah. in. That's just th- a fact now. No, but I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't think it is. I think it depends on what the role is. But I think have a chat with the company, especially if you're at the level where you're buying property. I'm hoping maybe you've been in like, you know, full time work, not even not necessarily at yeah, your company yeah. for long enough to be at a level that you can have at least this kind of conversation with your with your boss. If they've been lax up until now and you haven't had to come in every day, you've come in maybe once a week up until now, maybe you can have a conversation and do that. I've heard of people who have actually relocated to a different country, especially if you're part of one of these network agencies, you work out of another office and people do that. So I think it's worth a conversation. I swear all of our, all of our answers to the media and ons when it's not about, you know, I've accidentally shagged my boss. (laughs) It's like, have a, have an open conversation with the powers that be. Honestly, and see what, yeah, communicate and and see what they say. And then if they say no, well, then you, you know, get to LinkedIn and, you know, yeah. fire up the recruitment. My only kind of add-on to that piece of advice is maybe have your own ideal proposition to put forward that highlights the benefits for them as well. Yeah. If yeah. there are yeah. any. But there will be. They get to keep yeah. you and all your knowledge of all the clients you've been working on yeah, and exactly. all the proprietary tools that you've worked on. And you're not going to leak that. And if you've moved out to the country, you could get chickens and they lay eggs and you could bring in, bring in delicious, fresh chicken eggs for your boss. Just when I think we're being friends. Bribing them, <laughs> you know, with your farm goods. Wow. No? That wraps up today's episode. If you like what you heard, like and subscribe. And remember, the Media Week 30 Under 30 Awards is open. Enter. See you soon.